I think it's about understanding, you know, where there are the needs in the world and then knowing that um, perhaps what's on the front cover of all of these magazines isn't actually the specific needs of, of people. Um, so I think a lot of it is, is down to educating yourself outside the silo of your own life, um, which is really easy said than done because I've, I've you know, really had difficulty doing it myself and, and trying to understand all of these uh, political aspects as a healthcare person, um, but they all interplay and we have a major in that. So welcome back to the Restore podcast with myself, Ron Walker. In this episode, I'm speaking with Emily Regis on the impact of disasters on women. So Emily is currently studying a PhD in the application of feminist intersectional analysis on the global health challenges of disaster impacted on women. So what I wanted to do in this episode is really look at the cross-section of challenges that women face in the contemporary climate, specifically in relation to natural disasters and or conflict, because um, as we'll find out as the conversation goes on, there is massive disparity and indeed discrimination in the way they they affect the female population and a distribution across the network. So without further ado, we'll, um, we'll welcome Emily on and what we'll do is really just get her bio and then we'll head into the interview. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Emily. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Emily, I just wondered if you could just unpack your background for us. Yeah, so um, my background is, is I was an emergency nurse for 15 years. Um, I did a whole bunch of different things from helicopter trauma retrieval through to international repatriation. I was a remote area nurse in a tiny town in the outback of Australia. Uh, and then I went into disaster management. During that time, I received a Winston Churchill Fellowship um, and I got to do some research on the integration of WHO verified emergency medical teams uh, and private aeromedical retrieval teams. Teams. Um, I went to New York and studied a diploma of humanitarian assistance and then later became a tutor for Fordham University on their IDHA course. Um, during that time, I w- started working for the International Committee of the Red Cross um, in Borneo, Jordan and Azerbaijan. And I then received a Sir John Monash scholarship to do a PhD of my choice uh, in any country in the world. Um, and I decided to do it in the Netherlands. And I'm doing a PhD, as you said, looking at um, feminism and intersectionality and where climate change comes into that. Well, that's a real, um, a real variety uh, and cross-section of both experience and um, and education in in the area of disaster management and further as well. So very much like me, Emily, I think you started out in very much the frontline uh, delivery of, of sort of emergency medicine and, and then migrated into disaster management and humanitarian care. But Emily, I just wondered if you could speak to what you see as sort of the fundamental problem from your perspective around the impact of global disasters on on women? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of ideas about what uh, being a woman means when we talk about disaster management and it's going across a a whole cross-section of different layers. Um, So there are some misconceptions that uh, all women are considered vulnerable Um, and it's definitely something that I thought when I first started. Um, It's a very unempowering element of disaster management. So this idea that as a woman you're automatically um, going to be extremely vulnerable in a disaster situation and it, it does seem to take away a lot of agency. Um, and that's perpetuated by certain statistics. So there is a statistic that's going around um, by the United Nations that talks about women and girls are 14 times more likely to die in a natural disaster than uh, men. Um, And it's based on the Bangladesh um, 1990s when they had all the floods and and, um, 90% of the people there that were killed were women. Um, But what that 
does not include is it doesn't look at uh, the increased preparedness, response and recovery that women have and what that means um, to improving these mortality statistics. Um, it, it reduces their voice, um, but it also lumps all women into one. So we can't say that somebody who grows up in the global north is um, just as um, susceptible as somebody who grows up in the global south. Um, so I think that there's an idea about women in disasters because our understanding of women as a vulnerable group um, in this new area, especially in health, is still in its infancy. Um, so I think that that's, that's where my sort of passion comes from and my interest in the topic. So you're currently studying your PhD in in uh, in this area. So one of the just the opening gamuts, which I really liked from your introduction to your PhD, was was just as a result of of a piece, um, a, almost a statement where disasters um, don't differentiate, they don't discriminate, but there's systems and networks that we divide an, a response or indeed an approach do differentiate and do discriminate could you just maybe open up as to why why this became a passion for you and you know that opening statement really does and, and everything you've just mentioned really does sort of not only intrigue me but but just um just just opens up the door because I think a lot of people don't realize this. They don't realize this the systems and networks do discriminate so so profoundly. Could you maybe just speak to that and, and, and why you decided to do a PhD in it? Yeah, um, I am really interested in this idea of structural violence, which is quite an old concept, um, but it's, it's come into vogue when we've, we start to think about the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter, and we start to consider what are these different layers that are held up by society that create a structure um, that slowly every day gives violence to a certain group. Um, and that violence is normalised. It's down from little jokes to um, old ways of doing things to discrimination when it comes to gender normative behaviour. But when we add all of these tiny little micro things up, they do create a structure. Um, the same thing happens within a disaster. So when we think about disasters, we think about um, mass casualties and um, huge infrastructure damage and all of these ideas. And that comes from the old definition of what a disaster is. Whilst more people die from heat waves in Australia than any other disaster combined. So there's no infrastructure damage there, but what there is, is there's social vulnerabilities that ensure certain people are more susceptible to the impact of heat. So for me and the way I describe it within my, my, uh, my research is a disaster isn't natural. So there is a weather system that hits a social structure that is already vulnerable and that weather system really compounds these social issues creating a disaster. We've seen it in history, it just hasn't been understood fully. Um, so, for example, there was a major uh, flood in Mississippi, and this is in the 1930s, and it was going to destroy this whole town. So what they did was they actually got the African-Americans to lie down and create human sandbags because they'd run out of sandbags. And that pushed the water into their own communities, destroying their own communities. And generally speaking, these were people who lived in poverty, so their, their housing was poorer. Um, you know, their ability to rebuild wasn't there. Um, their um, ability to access healthcare, all of these other elements and schooling and policing and, you know, it, it creates this huge social issue. And this is what disasters do. And we see it so often now. Um, and it's only going to get worse with climate change because climate change itself has its own issues that are then further perpetuating these weather systems, creating ongoing disasters. So for me, there's nothing natural about a natural disaster. It's a really interesting perspective and, and really redefines, um, like you said, the sequelae or the, or the outcome um, and fruition of, 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 of a disaster uh, from a very different perspective. Could you speak to um, intersectionality, Emily, if possible? Because some people might not be 
um, used to the term or indeed familiar with the term? And, and maybe could you just sort of unpack it from your perspective about how it sort of privileges certain groups while precluding others? Yeah, so it's the idea that um, we're not a homogenous group. So, um, you know, not all women have the same experiences or walk the same walks. Um, not all men do, not all people who are like with a disability, you know, there's all of these different elements. So it's considering your privileges um, when you consider where you're situated. Um, So for me, I, you know, I am from a single parent family growing up in a really tiny town where English was my family's second language. Um, but I also was uh, one of the only white kids in the ca- in the small town that I grew up in. And with that comes a level of privilege. And um, I was then able to go to university. I didn't have to face um, these layers of discrimination because I came from a country where it was easier to go to university, especially if you're white. You know, there's, there's different things that you need to consider when you consider what um, impact these social structures have on who you are as a person and your advantages and disadvantages. Um, so it's intersectionality really came out of race theory um, and it has been picked up a lot by feminists because it's starting to understand that, um, you know, not all women have the same experience and a lot of women of colour are more likely to experience things in a very different way and have added challenges associated with that. So, Emily, could you sort of speak to the gender norms and labour disparity sort of that you see out uh, play out in, in society in both developed and developing contexts? Because there clearly is sort of these gender norms. Having lived in the Middle East, as you yourself has, uh, and seen some of these sort of gender norms and disparity in labour, could you could you speak to 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 how how it plays out and, and some, maybe some of your own anecdotal experiences? Yeah, so um, my thought is is that gender normative behaviour ensures that women are more likely, particularly in um, contexts where there is a strong patriarchal behaviour, they're more likely to be injured in a natural a natural disaster. So um, there's this uh, concept about the division of labour. So it's this idea that um, women are more likely to be in the home, they're more likely to be looking after children um, or the elderly and when we're considering these social structures um, with poor housing um, and then when a weather system comes through, they're more likely to be injured. So that's what they found in that Bangladesh case was women were less likely to be able to escape um, and were more likely to drown because they had children or elderly that were reduce their ability to run away. Um, You know, I've worked in Asia, in the Middle East, um, and even when I was in Azerbaijan, and you will see women are more likely to be at the home, in the home, they're more likely to be cooking. It was very rare, um, particularly in the Middle East, for me and my field officer, who was also a woman, but anybody else to be female in disaster management. Um, For me, that's very problematic because it's playing into these gender norms but it's also giving this homogenous idea of what disaster preparedness and response is um and in contexts like southeast asia particularly the indo-pacific when um they've like had more influence women have had more influence in preparedness the recovery has been significantly better um so for me, I, um, I've experienced discrimination even within Australia. Uh, there was a comment made when I was um, part of the bushfire response. So um, I was part of um, the management team. There was a joke made that um, we all know, Emily, that if push comes to shove, um, we'll push the pretty girl to the side and the men will get the work done. And that was um, that was coming from somebody who was senior to me um and you know these like subtle jokes that play into the idea that women are really the pretty thing at the side of the table you know you might have a seat at the table but it's really not worth the same amount as the man sitting next to you is um an idea that I see way too often um and I've seen it across the board Um, I think that gender normative behaviours are very toxic also to men. 
Um, there's a very uh, strong idea that men are supposed to be these strong, able, um, you know, sort of superhero characters, particularly in the context of a disaster. And that puts increasing social pressure on them. Um, and there's been a lot of evidence to sort of show that toxic gender normative behaviour and masculinity then plays into increased rates of domestic violence. Um, so there's sort of like a, a very strong correlation between the two um, as a way to sort of offshoot this um, level of, you know, emotion that they're unable to deal with. So for me... Um, there is a strong focus on gender normative behaviours for women and what that means for women, but all in all, gender normative behaviours are extremely toxic for anybody in society. And in various ways, I'm, I'm thinking sort of they can reduce the agency um, of, of women. Could you, could you maybe speak to the agency in various contexts globally and sort of how great the current gap is versus where it sort of needs to be I know that's a very sort of ethereal question because it, I suppose contextually there's, there there is it's hard to be descriptive because there's so much disparity between cultures but maybe in some generic terms if you could sort of speak to the, the current gap and where it needs to be yeah, yeah. Um, so the um, World Economic Forum does a gender inequality index and nobody is equal. So that's that's as a start. That's, um, you know, we, we, we always sort of say, oh, Sweden, Iceland, you know, Denmark, they're doing really well, New Zealand, but they're still not equal. So um, I think it's really important for listeners to go and look at their own country on that and see what, what percentage their country is because you would really shocked by how bad some of the index um, disparities are. What this gender inequality index does is it looks across a whole board. So it will look at from education to um, representation of government to, you know, economics, everything. And it just shows how much, how far we still have to go. Um, for me, a lot of it is around um, gender norms and gender normative behaviours and cutting them down and understanding structures. And I do think that the Me Too movement really pushed uh, a big idea around that, that this is actually a problem, that it's extremely problematic. Uh, I would like that the continuation of that to keep going um, and I'd like it to keep going into certain um, areas that perhaps are seen as um, less likely to have those structures. So, you know, humanitarianism, it's it's from the inside, we all know that in the humanitarian world there are problems around sexism and racism. It's it's very common. Um, but from the outside, that's still not really recognised. Um, and you see the same thing in disaster management. Uh, health disaster definitely has female representation, but is it back to that idea of are they still considered to have the same worthiness of a seat at the table as men and what does that mean? And what does that mean for male um, gender norms? You know, there's a lot of extreme pressure on them to then be these, these saving heroes. Um, but we also, when we don't have proper representation and proper agency to represent ourselves, um, we only see one side of the problem-solving capacity and we really miss out on the problem-solving capacity of the whole community and the whole population. So um, reducing agency is something that we see have seen worldwide with COVID um, and that in itself is a health disaster. Um, so I'm hoping that now that we're on the other side of COVID allegedly, um, that we'll start to understand what the role of agency does for women to try and promote um, equality and, um, and get us that little bit further to creating better indicators. So listen, I think that's fantastic because like you said, once we can get indicators and, and basically an aspiration of, uh, of a healthy baseline, um, something I very much saw in Somalia was um, women coming into uh, being appointed into um, administrative roles uh, with qualifications greater than their, uh, indeed, their bosses. 
and you know, you know into administrative roles with MSCs and some start looking to try and study their PhDs in Somalia um, coming into and only being allowed to do administrative roles you know not couldn't couldn't come into an executive leadership position couldn't um but 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 was 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 almost the most overqualified administrator that you could have found and i had this overwhelming respect for 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 women that 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 would choose to take these jobs yet they were you know subject to this this occult so hidden uh, discrimination which would, was was a real glass ceiling to any of their progression but but again to your point you know we if we can start to normalize in the humanitarian context these healthy indicators actually from where where it is now to where it needs to be and just try and get this global recognition and it is incremental all this is going to be incremental it's going to be over time but i would co- co- consistently work with uh, a couple of women in the somali context and just have this overwhelming respect and feeling of real discrimination that and helplessness if i was honest that i couldn't really necessarily help change things for them but they were fantastic fantastic you know people and professionals really super um diligent and also had a real life of detail and and ironically you know better educated than the people that were appointing them and i just thought gosh this this just a real a real not only disparity here but just a real glass ceiling that they that 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 they can't can't break through yeah and um that's the idea for me especially of slow violence like these tiny little things that all add up to be something huge i often get the well women are the worst culprits i hear that a lot and um, as in they're the worst culprits at, at ensuring that the glass ceiling remains there. And I do think there's an element of it because I think that society um, is perpetuating this competitive nature because there's almost only one spot for one woman. And, um, you know, especially when we're considering places like Somalia, um, where there is just not enough um, places. And to get a woman into a senior position, it's incredibly difficult. It's less likely to happen. And so that one woman is obviously going to be fighting for that spot. Um, So I think that that's a really great excuse to not consider the patriarchy. For me, um, there's a lot of words that people are very frightened of feminism patriarchy gender norms um and and these are words that we really we really need to start dissecting so that people understand what they actually mean rather than being scared of the idea of what they could be um patriarchy once again is is actually hurting men just as much as it's hurting women so yeah so Emily, just looking at, so it does open up not only from an educational disparity, but from a health disparity as well. So access to healthcare and indeed uh, continued care. Could you maybe speak to the gap that's opened up? We, I think we'll touch on burns slightly later because there is a, a massive health disparity there, not only in incidence, but maybe in a quality of 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 outcome and indeed of access but could you just could you maybe just speak to the health disparity you see from your from your side yeah so um there's particularly a lot of the research that i am interested in is focused on developing countries um and so for me disasters create major um health disparities over a number of different mediums. So um, you have, you know, the initial injuries because of the division of labour. So you'll have women more likely to break things, um, more likely to require surgery. Uh, There's a lot of uh, research that's come out of both MSF and Médicaires Sans Frontières and International Committee of the Red Cross who have done work post-disasters in their surgical tents that have shown that... um, Um, women there's a higher rate of women um, that come in but then you also have the added issues so post-disaster a lot of work has been done especially around Bangladesh about post-disaster you start to see a lot of uh, compounded social issues so um, 
reduction of food um, security. So that means that they're trying to reduce the size of their families. This is a very simplified version. Um, And so increasing rates of child brides happen. And that's a way to try and reduce the amount of uh, the size of the family because there's just not enough food to go around. Um, There's been um, strong correlation to child brides and increasing rates of gender-based violence. Um, And then you've also got just in general, women are more susceptible to gender-based violence post-disaster. The interesting thing is when we consider climate change, because then we start to see it from disasters from different perspectives. Uh, In India, they found that with climate change, um, there's an increasing rate of bride burning. So with every one degree precipitation drop, there's a 7.9% increase of bride burning. And they're saying that that's not so much related to um, the stress of the situation, but more to the monetization of women, um, which then goes back to that idea of gender normative behaviors and and, and reducing women's agency to be uh, part of the family unit. Um, So health disparities for me within disasters are significant and we only know a really subsection. Um, I do think that there's been a strong historical focus on looking at women's health from purely as sexual and reproductive and that we need to open that up now and start to consider what are the other ways that women are more susceptible to other health problems as a result of the fact that gender normative behaviours are creating issues. Emily, could we just speak to uh, some of the meta examples of infrastructure and planning? Because I think in, in your PhD proposal, or indeed within your abstract, you were speaking around sort of um, poor town planning, urbanisation, deforestation and, and pollutions negatively impact women compared to compared to men. Could you could you unpack that? Yeah, so... Um... There's some really interesting work that looks at Sweden. So we consider Sweden, you know, they've got very good gender equality. Um, They're really aiming towards improving uh, their greenhouse gas emissions and um, trying to make it a greener country. Um, But there's work to show that regardless, women are still um, within Sweden, women are still more likely to have issues when it comes to climate change. They're less likely to drive a car, which means they're more likely to have difficulties within um, being being outdoors or around weather systems and things like that. So this started to make me think about what are the other ways that women are more susceptible, um, particularly when we consider developing countries. Um, So at the moment we are seeing these horrific floods that are going on in South Africa and, um, you know, they're going on in very urbanised areas that have been been built up very quickly. The same thing has happened in um, Australia uh, where the the region that I'm from, we had floods only a month ago in a highly urbanised area. And it's that consideration of... Um, major um, population growth in areas that potentially shouldn't be built up, Um, deforestation to accommodate that. Um, And I saw the same thing in Jordan. In Jordan, due to the refugee crisis and mass migration, um, they had built up areas in naturally occurring wadi systems. So in a country that has some of the worst droughts in the world, they still saw flash flooding because they were going down through the naturally occurring wadis that had, you know, they'd effectively ruined this ecosystem. And this is what we're seeing globally. And that's why we're seeing this ongoing impact. And for women, particularly when we consider the uh, division of labour, that's increasingly difficult because they're the ones who are more likely to be at home and more likely to be susceptible to these poor infrastructures and, and damages associated with it. Um, yeah, I, I think this is why the climate movement's so powerful at the moment. Um, and, you know, I think you and I are around the same age and I think perhaps we've got something to be said for our generation that just sort of let this go because when we look at um, these, you know, teenagers who are doing incredibly amazing advocacy for their future and, um, yeah, 
I think that they should be really proud of what they're trying to achieve and and to educate us. And that that's part of the issue is is there's just been a lack of education that mass consumerism, overpopulation, and um, urbanization are really destroying um, our world. So you make a fantastic comparative in 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 your proposal around the uh, Haiti. Uh, disaster in 2010 and then the rebuild of 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 uh, Port-au-Prince and indeed just the main infrastructure across the main fault line um, again and this argument can be made even in developed contexts within New Zealand potentially Christchurch and other places where there's profound fault lines and indeed knowledge of fault lines that 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 could cause reoccurring uh, reoccurring disasters um, and that some of, the, some of these examples are very um very profound actually because like you said it's, it's almost setting the context again for another disaster down down the line with with maybe very similar repercussion repercussions and i suppose sort of skipping skipping on not necessarily skipping on from that but but how the fruition of that is that these disasters such as the haiti disaster and and others uh have a have a degree high degree of of political manipulation or framing to the larger to the larger public could you could you speak to that because again this is something which i really didn't know the details of and indeed have oversight of but but you, you know you, you really bring it out quite nicely within the within the proposal yeah, Haiti is really interesting, and if um, if anybody is interested, I recommend reading some Paul Farmer work, or you can actually go um, onto Netflix and watch his documentary. Um, he touches on it. He was a infectious diseases doctor who unfortunately passed away um, very recently, um, and he drew this idea about structural violence within Haiti and the historical and colonialistic um, consequences. Um, and Haiti is interesting because as a country, they are continuously having really bad disasters and um, they've been built with this historical ties to the United States of America that um really wanted to perpetuate this sort of colonialistic behaviour that now that the US has pulled out slightly is being perpetuated by their own people. So uh, these ideas about corruption, about inequalities, um, layered violence and um, ensuring that certain people make a lot of money and certain people lose a lot of money. Um, And you see that a lot when you're considering access to HIV. Um, medication and um, but for me one of the biggest things is like you said before is building back directly onto those fault lines so Haiti you know they've had two really bad earthquakes in the last I think 12 years both times they had this insane level of international support that came in um, and they built back onto the exact same spot. Um, So there wasn't this idea about building back better, building back in safer spots. There was this almost uh, colonial idea of, you know, the white knight coming in, building back in the same spot, not talking about disaster preparedness, not talking about the fact that we need to create a safer community. Um, And what that's done is that's created a number of social issues. One of them um, I would like to quickly touch on is um, in the first um, earthquake, there were two uh, middle-free schools and both of them were completely destroyed. And they weren't built back for a number of years which meant that there was no access for a long time to new midwives um, and there was just a lack of education. This has now knocked on to that Haiti has uh, the highest maternal mortality rate in that region. That's horrific. So this is like when you consider that um, a school was built in an area that it shouldn't have been built in and then it wasn't built again, and what that means for women when they're trying to access any level of healthcare, um, and we're talking about years afterwards. So this is sort of this cyclic poverty that is ongoing. Um, and so 
for me, it's really interesting to consider the colonial past, particularly when you are looking at developing countries. I work a little bit in Uganda, in a hospital in Uganda, and uh, Uganda in itself has a reasonable level of healthcare, and that's because there was this sort of safety idea from the British that came in and they created these kind of um you know, Commonwealth-style um, structures to make sure that that's the way society worked. Um, but then when you look at uh, the DRC with the way the Belgians came in and um, there was a horrific number of people that were ongoingly killed and raped as a result of the rubber factory there. And then you wonder why there's now ongoing um, violence and what that means for society and perpetuating um, these ideas. So for me, I think that when we consider the micro healthcare of an individual, we then also need to consider what are the macro geopolitics that are ensuring that that individual stays sick, because there are a lot that go into it. Um, the HIV um, access to medication is an easy one to show where the cost of medication is so obscenely high and so difficult to access for so many people um, that it just becomes a, a major advocacy issue over anything else. But we have just recently seen the same thing with the COVID-19 vaccination. You know, us you know, sitting in our countries, we're onto our third vaccination and we probably will soon be able to get our fourth. And there are certain places that are struggling to get their first. And, and why is that? What does that mean from a geopolitical perspective that ensures that those countries remain fragile, they remain um, vulnerable, and um, they remain poor. And, you know, we really have to um, consider not only our privilege, but what that means and how we can try and reduce these these ongoing um, issues and inequalities. So, Emily, you spoke about burns earlier, just, you know, and the, the devastating effect burns can have. Um, could you maybe just speak to the sort of disproportional impact it has on women and and... Yeah, just and then how how we maybe unravel that is it's, it's a very I suppose that's a very difficult question how, as, as to how to unravel it, but but maybe just the disproportional effect because even just that the level of awareness is maybe the starting point for for change. Yeah, so burns is interesting to me. I was a burns ICU nurse um, if, at the Royal Brisbane Hospital, and. Um, as many of you would be aware, you know, when a burns patient comes in, we work out how much burns they are. And one of the, the indicators on that is gender. And if it's a woman, they get two points. If it's a man, they get one point. And I asked a lot of people about that and not many people could answer. They were like, oh, well, fat distribution and hormones. And, and then I started to read up on burns. And there's a lot of evidence to show that women are more likely to die from a catastrophic burn injury than men. And there isn't a lot of evidence as to exactly why that is. Um, interestingly, some of the burns articles that I read that were written by surgeons were saying perhaps we should consider the social issues that uh, are maybe leading to women um, being more likely to have a higher mortality rate um, as a result of burns. And I thought that was very powerful for surgeons to consider that, um, but to also just this idea that, you know, the social impact of something can, can really change the way someone's injured, but it can change then the way that they recover from that injury and what that means. Now, we know this idea around biosocial, and we see it a lot when we consider asthmatic. So we go, well, what's your living condition like? But we don't consider it in many other areas. And uh, for me, where, where I find it super fascinating is the idea of what climate change is doing to perpetuate certain things. I'm very interested in the idea that climate change is perpetuating burns. I think that um, there are a, a lot of a number of assumptions that I have that include this idea that climate change increases um, these weather systems, creating disasters, reducing infrastructure, ensuring that many people are going to be cooking or spending time outside. And by people, we then consider the division of labour, and we know that that will be women, and women are more likely to get burnt. 
What is interesting is when you look at the data, women are more likely to get burnt. You know, I've, I've looked at data from Nepal to India and Bangladesh and Uganda, um, but they also have a high delay in accessing healthcare. And that delay for me is something that I think that we need to unpack. And as researchers, we need to really consider because is that a, a delay because of gender normative behaviour that women need to be staying at home looking after the children and there's no one to look after them? Is it a delay because there's not enough finances and that um, they're less likely to be the ones that are accessing the finance to then access the healthcare with the pay for service care um, or what what are those elements um, I think that we have only started to unravel all of the health issues that climate change is going to have um, and for me burns is a major issue Recently, um, an article was released that looked at uh, injury rates due to climate change in the United States, and they were they had predicted that it would be about a seventeen hundred um, increase per year. Which I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how they were able to sort of determine that, um, but it's this idea that uh, there are a lot of different other health problems that we're going to see, um, and they might not be. Um, initial health problems, but they're secondary to the impact of climate change. Um, and we need to consider that a bit more. And that's why I like the idea of burns, um, because I think that it's something that we can very obviously see. Um, and then considering what happens when somebody gets burnt as well, the social isolation, um, you know, it's, it burns is, a, is, as you know, it's a horrible injury that often is multiple surgeries. So that's multiple accessing healthcare. It's a long recovery. It's um, social isolation post-recovery. It's stigmatisation. There's so many different things that as a woman particularly um, can be very difficult to consider. So absolutely, these, these multifactorial needs from burns patients for everything from sepsis and infection to, let's say, um, the cosmetic ramifications, how it, how it can disfigure, but also the immediate needs, as you say, you know, the airway, you've got pain needs, little chronic and acute pain needs. There, there is um, obviously fluid shift in significant burns, but, but you're, the disfigurement and the ongoing uh, cosmetic needs and and physical needs around you know lack of um, collagen or indeed uh, elasticity to the skin from a second or third degree burn as, yeah. it, as it plays out. Um, interest, sorry to interrupt, but interestingly, I read this is thing uh, about women and burns, and and as you probably know, and I know, all of the big burns that I've seen have often been on the face, chest, and neck. It's a, you know, there is either an explosion, it's um, self-emulation. I've seen a lot of self-emulation burns um, or, um, you know, a, a barbecue fire. And that's the area that where our personality also lays. Yeah. And, and this article was talking about what it means to have a facial burns and then what it means for your own personality and your own personality changes. Um, so mental health plays in a major role when we consider burns. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's these, like, immediate needs and there's these ongoing needs and then there's, yeah, then split into so many different other sections from rehab to mental health. And just, just coming back, something that popped into my mind, actually, when I spent time in Malawi myself in uh, Blantyre uh, in Queen's Hospital, one of the paediatric hospitals, um, th again, there's lots of assumptions that people can make and I would probably make if I didn't have this experience around. So so in, in, in the hospital, nursing staff don't exist. It, the primary carers are the family. So you have doctors and you have the family. So the family are in charge of... Uh, hygiene requirements for the patients, for the paediatric patients, for the child patients. They're they are um, in charge of medication administration, bringing food in for the patients, and they're all women. So the the, the primary carers are are are, are women. Um, the men, especially within with newborns, don't really acknowledge their newborns for about six months or so. They 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 come into the family that the, the but I just saw a proliferation of, of primary carers of women who were taking on this nursing role that um, they, they, they can't then earn money. They can't go out to work because they're full-time nursing. Um, 
this was and some indeed some burns patients pediatric burns patients as well in in, in hospital but this if I wouldn't have seen that play out in front of my eyes, I, I wouldn't have necessarily understood some of the impact that that and the disparity that has, because there's these deep underlying assumptions that just because it's my child as a, as a husband or father, I'm, it's not my duty to go in and care for that. You know, the, the just the profound <laughs> disparity and, and discrimination there and, you know, holding this, this one of the one of the women who was uh, the, the mother who was nursing this 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 um six month old little baby who had was hiv positive who had tb in its spine and had malaria and was breathing at you know 50 resps a minute it was cachectic malnourished and just I was holding this 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 child in the palm of my hand with these three profound um killers really you know tb malaria and hiv positive and just this this woman this this mother that was looking at me and just desperate and I uh, just there's there's almost no words to how that made me feel really and, you know, even being in that situation myself made me realize how privileged I am just as a, as a person, but oh. how difficult it is for the, the, the maternal, for, for the mother there, you know, just not only is she a carer, not only can she not work, not only does she, it is the assumption that she will be there. This burden of health that she has upon her, her firstborn, as a young as a young mother of of only 21 that's just blew me away I, and 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 suppose in a way just speaking candidly i mean made me realize that i what whatever happens to me is so insignificant compared to some of the the disparity that that exists and if if you don't put yourself in that context you largely are unaware that it it's ever occurring yeah, I I um, completely can relate. You know, when you sit and um, you see the desperation for something that just wouldn't even occur in the country that you come from, um, you know, these are purely preventable things. It's just trying to deal with that um, as, a, as a parent would be so hard. And I, um, and, and like me sitting there thinking, this is, this should not be happening. You know, why, why are we, why is there such a high level of disparity in the world? Like it just, it shouldn't be happening and it shouldn't be happening still. And so much of it is due to historical issues. Like, you know, there are so many historical factors that are interplay to make sure that that woman, her child, was not able to access healthcare and was was dying of things that they should never have even had in the first place. Um, and I just, I don't know, I feel that the constant disparities in the world is something very difficult to, to comprehend. Um, you and I would be definitely looking at it from the health perspective um, because we, we both consider health, I'm sure, as a human right. And so in places where there is just no access to health care, um, it, there, there's no access to human rights. And, and that's just when you really consider the basic aspect of that, it's horrific. So Emily, we've we've covered a lot of ground in 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 sort of the last forty five minutes or so, and you know I think uh, I think you're right. I really agree with you. The multifactorial needs of Burns patients is is a really um, a profound one to look at actually because there there is so much going on there and interrelated mental health on on top of that 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 it's it's a fantastic indicator or indeed pathology to to examine um, for health. Of, of, of women but also ongoing health of, of women because because as you said you know it's not necessarily pathology you can fix quickly it can last over a lifetime and have very much cosmetic disfiguring um sort of properties to to the pathology i suppose emily as we sort of come into land on the conversation 
could is there any for, for some for people that may not be used to listening to sort of a healthcare talk or indeed to the humanitarian context and and people just from all different walks of life what could you what could you infer what what sort of take-homes could you infer that people can do or indeed just should, should be aware of on a macro level that that they could sort of take away from this from this conversation I think a lot of it is around um empathetic education um it's it's you know for me um it was coming from Australia that's a country that's very safe um, we are almost asleep to what's going on to the rest of the world. And I was, um, when I first left Australia uh, a few years ago, well, it wasn't the first time I left, but when I, when I left a few years ago, um, I went into this course on humanitarian assistance and I started to realise about these inequalities. And I felt incredibly bad that I'd spent, you know, a significant part of my life just not knowing. Um, but I had to sort of, you know, be a bit more empathetic to myself, but really start to educate myself and educate my understanding on what's going on. And, and that's just absorbing things, you know, listening to podcasts, reading and starting to go, wow, these things are so interconnected. The world is so interconnected. And I think by giving a little bit of empathy to yourself, then you perhaps will start to give a bit more empathy to those who are in need or who are um, in incredibly difficult situations. Um, I think it's about understanding, you know, where there are the needs in the world and then knowing that um, perhaps what's on the front cover of all of these magazines isn't actually the specific needs of, of people. Um, so I think a lot of it is, is down to educating yourself outside the silo of your own life, um, which is really easy said than done because I've, I've you know, really had difficulty doing it myself and, and trying to understand all of these uh, political aspects as a healthcare person, um, but they all interplay and we have a major role in that. We have a major role in, you know, ensuring that our head of state is somebody who is going to be able to be empathetic to our region, um, ensuring that our region is stabilised and with what that means is that then has this knock-on effect that ensuring that people have access to healthcare. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's so many different aspects, but, yeah, read up, listen, start considering things outside your own silo um, and... But do it with empathy because, you know, um, we are taught what we're, we're supposed to be taught by the media and so it's sometimes it's a little bit difficult to step around that, um, that media shell that they give us on what they want us to know. Emily, that's fantastic. And what I'll do is I'll put in the show notes some recommendations from yourself. Um, uh, and what we'll do is um, put the links to those in the show notes so that people can click on them and and just you're right, start to gain a wider appreciation of 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 the reality uh, outside of the context. And and you're right in the contemporary climate, you know, the, the the echo chambers are profound within the social media worlds, whereas actually stepping out into that larger context is is exactly where it needs to be. So we'll 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 put those in the show notes and that would be that would be fantastic i mean it just leaves me to say thank you so much for your last hour because i find it truly insightful i i think there's there's so much that your recognition and indeed um highlighting in 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 the wider context which is which which needs to be advocated for so thank you for your perspectives and for your work in in this area thank you and thanks again for having me on the show it's been a great time to have a little chat about what i'm very passionate about Thanks, Emily.